Good morning. It's good to see you all and worship the Lord with you this fine morning. And uh, we are continuing on in our study of the book of Hebrews. And so we have been going through chapter 1, verse by verse, and now we are in um, the beginning, somewhat of the beginning of chapter 2. And so as we begin this portion of our worship, let's start with a prayer. O make your word a swift word, passing from ear to the heart, from the heart of the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower then the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not, see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for, who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So I have three points for us this morning, and those three points are purpose, plan, and prepare. Purpose, plan, and prepare. I believe uh, this section, or this passage, can be sectioned into three. And the first one that we'll go over is in verse 5, which is purpose. We come back to the topic at hand, which ended from verses 5 to 14 in chapter 1, actually. And in chapter 1, he was talking about angels. And so it goes back to that topic in verse 5. The author of Hebrew clearly means that when he says, of which we are speaking, we see at the end of the verse. The earlier verses, from verses 1 to 4, was meant to be a pause, to deliver a warning to us who need to understand the gravity of the knowledge that we are receiving. Indeed, the word that God has for us is a truly glorious one, which should humble us and bring us to a place of thanksgiving. And I was thinking about that a lot the last maybe year plus or so. What is going on in the world today? I think we're not thankful at all. The more you believe you are enlightened, awakened, woke, whatever you want to call it, the more angry and less thankful you seem to get. And perhaps this is something that we can provide. We, us, Christians, the church, can provide as an example to the world. I believe we need a little more thanksgiving in our societies today. Perhaps then there will be a little less sin. But ultimately, the word of God 
brings its hearers to a place of repentance. And that's when you see true worshipers arise who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And so here we are now back on the topic in verse 5 with, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Of which we are speaking again is the explanatory cause clause showing us the continuity between verses 5 to 14. And in verse 5 to 14, if you remember, he was just expositing the Bible. He was giving us a Bible verse explaining what that means, a Bible verse explaining what that means in light of angels. And these Bible verses weren't just talking about angels. They were actually pointing to the exposition of messianic passages. And this is what we'll continue to see here. But before we continue with that exposition, he gives us a gem of a sentence in verse 5 because he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. What does that mean? What does that mean if you think about it? God, not to angels, God subjected the world to come? Does that mean the world currently is subject to angels? Some commentators actually think so. According to Deuteronomy 32.8, when it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Sons of God in the Greek translation or the Septuagint is angel. So, if the boundaries are established according to the number of angels, it would imply that the world has been subject to angels at least to whatever degree. I would think that, though, that is somewhat speculative because it's not definitive by the nature of this current statement. So what is clear in the statement? What is clear is that the world to come will not be subject to angels, implying what? That the world to come will be subject to the Son. And he takes the next four verses that we've read to prove this very point. Uh, there's a well-known novelist by the name of Michael Crichton. Uh, he wrote some very popular works, which I enjoyed as a child or a teenager. Um, some modern literature that some might be familiar with. Uh, looking around, I don't think people know. He even wrote a very popular TV show. Um, you might not know his name, but you might know him by his works. Congo, Rising Sun, Sphere are just some of the books that I read when I was a kid. Uh, there, he even created a medical TV drama series called ER. But he is probably most famous for writing the book Jurassic Park. And I remember reading Jurassic Park, and I remember falling in love with that book. It was, it, I don't read much fiction, but that was a fiction book I especially enjoyed. Um, and I remember when the movie came out, I refused to watch it. I was like, there's no way this is going to be as good as the book. And so maybe 20 years later, after the movie came out, I watched the movie. So it took me about 20 years. But Michael Crichton's an interesting character because he studied at Harvard in the 60s. And he went to study writing. And he went to the English department at Harvard. But at the English department at Harvard, he was so severely criticized for his work, and he received grades of C, maybe C plus on all his papers. 
Well, Michael Crichton was so confident in his writing skills that he was, he was set on becoming a writer. The next paper that he was supposed to do was supposed to be on Gulliver's travels. He decided to do a little experiment. And what he did was, at the risk of expulsion, he decided to plagiarize. And he retyped George Orwell's essay on Gulliver's travels, and he submitted it as his own. He put his own name on it. He was pretty confident. He himself, in his book, says he was vain. That's how he describes himself. But he was confident that his English professor at Harvard was not well-read enough to, to, to have read George Orwell's works on uh, Gulliver's travels. Anyway, that paper was graded and given back to him, and that paper received a B minus. So that means George Orwell got a B minus at Harvard. So what he decided was, he said, this is too difficult for me. He decided to switch majors to anthropology and decided to take some pre-med courses on the side, and then he eventually go to Harvard Med School, which obviously played a part as he created the show ER. Maybe Orwell getting a B minus gave Crichton the confirmation he needed not to give up on his pursuit as a writer. I think that's what a lot of people think. But I would like to go back even further. Why would you do that in the first place? It's a fun story for me to tell when I talk about Crichton, especially because I do, did enjoy his fiction works as a kid. But what I'm really trying to get at is he had a goal. He had a goal. He believed he had a purpose for writing. That's what led him to do all the things that he did. That's what led him to take all the risks and chances that he took. Now, could he have been wrong? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. But regardless of whether you're right or wrong, he decided to go for it. That's the question. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you set the goals that you set? Notice I'm not arguing if you have a purpose or not. That's not the argument here. I'm asking what is your purpose? Why do you do the things that you do? Because there is an answer. There is an answer. Some have this bizarre notion today that there is no purpose, no meaning to anything, but even a fundamental knowledge of science will show us that if there is an effect, there is what? A cause. Humans instinctively, they instinctively want to know what the cause is. Why? Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if you got that. I hope you do. We have a very smart audience. That's what I'll say. Uh, but the sun rises in the east. Why? Because of the earth's spin and rotation. Why? And then if a child is asking you, you might be like, oh, because God made it that way. And what would they ask? Why? And then you would answer, because he wanted to. Why? There is a word for this kind of study. It's called teleology. It's the study of why or the study of purpose. When we ask the question why, it's because we are concerned with what? Not only are we concerned with the cause, 
the beginning, the start. But when we see the beginning, what, we, what are we able to see? Teleology is from the word telos. Telos means goal, which means the end. We want to know the beginning because we want to know the end. We want to know why because we want to know what's going to be the finish. That's why we ask why. We, we are concerned. We as a, a human like being, we are concerned with ends, aims, and goals. So nihilists fail to prove that nothing has significance because purpose Purpose has never gone away. You can sing that song all the day about, you know, life has no meaning, life has no purpose, nothing really matters, and then sing about, I don't know, some Bohemian Rhapsody. But purpose never goes away from the least all the way to the infinite. Let's take a simple example of physics. The moon is spinning. Before you ask why, let me just tell you something about the moon. The moon isn't spinning at the same speed right now as it did before. It's slowing down. So the moon is slowing down. This is very common knowledge. What does that mean? That means one day it'll slow down till it stops spinning. Which means what? Which means it was faster before. Which means what? It means that there was a start to the spin, like a toy top that you start to spin, it's fast in the beginning, and it starts to slow down to an eventual stop. Then the inevitable question will come up, who spun the top? Then we can ask the spinner, why did you spin the top in the first place? We want to know, we want to know why. Because as the earth rotates, the tides and flowing waters actually create friction between those waters and the land masses. This saps energy from the earth's rotation, causing the earth to rotate more and more slowly, which is why our days are technically getting longer. So, teleology is the science of asking why. Why do we have this study? Because you want to find out the end. That's the purpose. What's the purpose? What's the goal? That is fundamentally what we are trying to find out when we are asking why. But we are given the telos, the purpose from the beginning of this section. This is why I said we have a gem of a verse in verse 5, right before he goes on to the exposition, right before he continues on expositing the messianic passages. In verse 5, God will subject the world not to angels. That's not the telos. That's not the purpose. That's not the goal. Then God will subject the world not to angels. Then to whom? To whom will the world be subject to? This leads us to point number two. Plan. From verses six to the beginning of verse eight, it says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the author has given us the purpose beforehand. He's pointing to the purpose. He starts off with a very peculiar statement. It has been testified somewhere. What? 
Like this next section, if you do any kind of study, very rudimentary study, will show you that this is a section from Psalm 8. Psalm 8. That's, it's a direct quote from Psalm 8. So did he not know where he was quoting from? Maybe. But the more important question is, does it matter? I think the writer is doing something ingenious here. By sounding a bit vague in the source of quotation, he is pointing then to what? The ultimate authorship of the scriptures. It is God who speaks in the scriptures, and with that, the identity of the person through whom the word is uttered is relatively unimportant. Even David, who wrote Psalm 8. Think of all the other religions out there. How important is the prophet who would pen the sacred text or texts? And here, even though it's David and it's from Psalm 8, the author is purposefully vague and shows that even if it is this illusion, this vague illusion, it's the ultimate authority of the scriptures that make this statement weighty, not the prophet who would put it down on paper. This statement then emphasizes the weight of the words that are said because of the source from which it came, namely God. This is why also Reformed Protestants, we hold dear to the doctrine called sola scriptura. It's incredibly important that we understand the weight of the scripture and how nothing else, no human, whether it's Pope or someone else or tradition, whether it's the Pope or tradition, no human can match the authority of Scripture. So what does the psalm actually say? Now that we have that established, Psalm 8 to the Hebrew would not have been taken as a messianic psalm. When you would read Psalm 8, no one would think back in the day, oh, this is a psalm about the Messiah. However, I will say that the psalm, Psalm 8, is actually cited by Jesus in Matthew 21, 16, and also by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. And now here in Hebrews chapter 2, the author is citing Psalm 8. And so how is it messianic? First, let's go back. How was the psalm taken by the first century Jew? This statement here would have corresponded to the divine mandate. It was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Let me read that for us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Humans, male and female, were created in the image of God. Not only that, they were entrusted with the earth to what? 
to subdue it and have dominion. To subdue it and have dominion. This is the divine mandate. You know, when I was a kid, I heard something, as someone said up on the stage, that we have dominion, but that doesn't mean we can dominate. What in the world? Dominion and dominate mean the same thing. So I don't, know, I don't even know what this person was trying to get at. To have dominion or to dominate something means to rule over or to have it subject to you. It's from the Latin word dominus, which means lord or master. It's translated from the Hebrew word rudahu, that's the synonyms, or rudo, which means to tread or rule over. This divine mandate has never been abrogated. It's never been abolished. It's never been put on pause. God never said, actually, let's not do this anymore. We are still commanded to rule over the earth. There are those that do not understand this, and it is to their detriment. If you have a lion next to you, your job is to not get eaten. I think that's a very simple thing to say. And to do that, you must subdue it. Imagine a person thinking that because humans shouldn't dominate, because they'll think things like, you know, look at all the harm we've done to Mother Earth. We should leave all the wild animals alone. Uh, in July of 2022, uh, macaque monkeys in Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi is a city in southwest Japan. Macaque monkeys attacked over by July of 2022. I believe it's still going on. Attacked over 58 of its city's residents. And this is a quote from a news article. For, for close to one month, a mob of Japanese macaques, the northernmost species of non-human primates, has terrorized the city, biting and scratching residents. The monkeys haven't just attacked people in the streets. They have also learned how to open sliding doors and climb into windows, the BBC reports. In one incident, a monkey broke into a kindergarten classroom and leapt on a four-year-old girl. In another incident, a monkey climbed through a window and supposedly tried to snatch a baby. Uh, I heard crying coming from the ground floor, so I hurried down, the baby's father told Mainichi Shimbum Daily. Then I saw a monkey hunching over my child. Nature is not our mother. Wild animals are not our rulers. Taking God's order and mandate and flipping it backwards leads to chaos. It doesn't lead to peace. We don't worship nature. Wild animals don't subdue us. That doesn't lead to peace. That's the divine mandate. It's still in effect today. So how would the Hebrew or the Jew have understood Psalm 8? Humans, male and female, were created in the image of God and trusted with the earth to subdue it and have dominion. But that purpose has been frustrated by sin and death. The mandated order has not been forgotten. It's still there, and it points then the psalmist to a place of awe and wonder. Now get it. Think about it. The mandate is still there. We, made in the image of God, cannot fulfill the mandate because sin has frustrated it. 
We can't do it that well anymore. In fact, it's very difficult. The purpose has been frustrated by sin and death. It pointed to the psalmist to a place of awe and wonder, though. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The divine mandate caused the psalmist to celebrate because he understood this. There would be a time when that purpose would be completed. The plan is in effect, which is leading us to the final point. Prepare. Now that the text has been quoted, the author is going to exposit it. He's going to explain it. He's quoted Psalm 8. Now he's going to explain it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Immediately, he points out that the person that the psalm was referencing isn't the abstract of a man. It's a particular, it's a specific man because there is absolute language here. Everything, nothing, right? Everything is in subjection to him and nothing is outside his control. This is the Messiah, the Son. He is the quintessential man. He is the purest form and ultimate epitome of who man is and what man should be. He is the one that Psalm 8 ultimately points to. But as it says in verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We'll come back to that part because there's a reason for that. So we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. This is the same language used in Psalm 8. So he's expositing by using that same language. And for the first time in the book of Hebrews, we are given the name of who the Son is. Who is this quintessential man? Jesus. Jesus is the Son. That means he is truly God. And Jesus is the Son of Man, meaning he is truly man. If you are familiar with uh, theological terms, this is the hypostatic union. Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly man. David had posed the problem and wondered with awe in Psalm 8. And the answer to Psalm 8 is given to us in Jesus. Jesus fulfills God's design. He completes, ultimately completes the divine mandate, something that we on our own could have never done. However, he was made a little lower than the angels. Means that's not a permanent fixture of Christ. It says for a little while. A little while, then what? Then he was crowned in glory so that he might taste death for everyone. So let's break it down this way. For a little while means he isn't anymore. That means that's the past. He was crowned with glory. That means he is crowned right now. That's the present. So he might taste death for everyone. That's the future. Past, present, future are given to us here. Why? Well, in the past, there's humiliation. Humiliation in the present. There's exaltation. 
to the future, glorification. But glorification for whom? Who is glorified in the future? It's us. The author of Hebrews is showing us what has been prepared by God for us. God made everything good. He even gave us a divine mandate, which was good and for our good. But we sinned and became corrupted, and all of creation was thrown into chaos and death. But God's purpose could not be thwarted, not even by us, so he had a plan. Even from Genesis 3.15, he told us of his plan that he would send his son. The son will be born as a baby from a young woman named Mary. He would grow up to live a perfect life. He would completely fulfill God's laws, but he would also die to take on our imperfect life and die. Our destiny, our end, was to receive God's wrath. Sin can only lead to one thing, death. Death is the punishment for sin. There's no way around it. For sin, there must be death. But what was prepared for us was a spotless lamb. In him, we would receive forgiveness for the grievous crimes we committed against God. And this was through Jesus taking upon himself, himself our sins and then dying because the punishment for sin is death. Jesus didn't only take away our sins. He defeated sin and death by rising again from the grave in three days. That means the power of sin and death are nullified by Christ, and that means entrance to the destiny with God that was intended for his people is available to those that have faith in Jesus Christ. To those that believe and follow Christ, Jesus says that he goes ahead of us to prepare a place for us. In John chapter 14, verse 2 to 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am going, that where I am, you may be also. What is that? That's Jesus guaranteeing a place for us. He is going to prepare a place for us. This guarantee is given to us by Jesus Christ. This is not because of something that I have done, but because of something that Christ has done for me. So what now? Jesus is gone to prepare a place for those that believe. What do we do here? Do we sit here and twiddle our thumbs? And Jesus says later in that chapter, to those that will believe him in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. We do the works that Jesus calls us to do. We don't do the works to be saved. We do them because we are saved. You see, when people first see the law, they're like, oh, do I have to follow this rule? And when you're a child, you think like that too. Dad, mom, can I go outside? Not at this hour. And you're like, oh, this is such a difficult rule. I don't like this rule. But as you grow, you understand that rule reflected what? It reflected the care and love that your parents had for you. That's why the parents gave you that rule. The rules and law of God reflect 
who God is. And so when we do the works that God has set us to do, because we're saved, it's because we see that God has given these things to us because he loves us and because he's showing us who he is. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. We don't do the works to be saved. We do the works because we are saved. And Jesus gives us the guarantee, though, that we will be able to do the works because he continues on in the next verses. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's not a magic verse. It's not some incantation that you say, but it's a verse that's been given to us. Why? Because we are saying, we can't do the works. We failed before. People better than us have failed before. You give someone a little power, they fail a little bit. You give someone a lot of power, they fail greatly. Look at all the authority. Like... The authoritarians that are out there, the dictators, the people that have killed massive amounts of people, look at their past and their history. They grew up poor. They wanted, they had good intent. They had good intent. And yet what happens? Millions of people get slaughtered because their intent didn't give them the strength that they needed. In fact, just because you have intent doesn't mean you'll do anything good. You might do things that are absolutely horrific and evil, which is what we are seeing. So, how can we complete the works that are ahead of us? It's through Jesus. Jesus Christ says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Here's the work that I need to do. I need to fight this sin. The sin is so difficult. Everybody's committing the sin around me. Everybody doesn't think the sin is even a sin. They actually celebrate this thing. How am I supposed to live my life where I don't also succumb to the sin? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The guarantee isn't given to us by our own strength. We're not supposed to muster it up on our own. The guarantee is given to us by Jesus that's what it means to have faith. And so there's work ahead of us. You know you need to do this work. It glorifies the Father. It gives glory to the Son. You want to proselytize to your family members, your friends. You want to share the good news. How do I do this? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. We are empowered to do the work that God has given us to do because Jesus Christ promises us that we are able to do it. We do the works not to be saved. We don't do the works to earn merit with God. We do the works because we are saved. How do you know that you will be able to run the race, fight the good fight? Jesus says, ask him, and he'll be able to strengthen you. That's how we prepare ourselves for the time to come. The time will come. Jesus will come again. How will you prepare yourself? Jesus says, ask me. I will do it. Prepare yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Obey the word of God. You can do it because of God. Praise be to God for his works. Praise be to God for what he has prepared for us. Praise be to God now that we have strength to prepare for his second coming. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the word and of encouragement that you give us. We thank you that we are not left alone to our own devices. But Lord God, that you have come to make what was disordered, ordered. To make what was dysfunctional, functional. To make what was chaos into peace in our lives. And so just as you have put everything in subjection under your feet, we too ask that we might be placed under your feet, that we may follow your plan, your laws, your dictates, your mandate, that we may glorify you, that we may be able to do the works that set before us as we look to our final destiny and eternity with you. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask, God, that as we ask for your strength, you would answer our prayers as we hold on to the promise that your Son has given us. Let's take this time to pray. And what is it that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of as you have heard the word read and preached? Is it a sin that you must fight? Then fight it asking for strength. Is it a task that you must complete? Then ask the Lord for strength. And he will give you that so that the Father in heaven will receive glory through the Son as he has promised us. Let's pray.